Welcome to my podcast, Explain It To Me, where I talk to very intelligent people and get them to explain things to me in the simplest way possible. On this episode, I talk to a paleontologist about dinosaurs, fossils, their accuracy at Jurassic Park, and I ask him the very obvious question of, what the heck would a dinosaur taste like? Listen to find out. Hey, my name is Donald Henderson. I'm curator of dinosaurs here at the Royal Terrell Museum of Paleontology in Drumheller, Alberta. And what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about the basics of dinosaurs and their fossilization and aspects of how dinosaurs lived. So what makes a fossil? A fossil is any trace of prehistoric life, and it can include body fossils, like skeletons or bones. It can include shells. Um, it can include plant material. And we also include what are called trace fossils, so evidence of activity of animals or plants. So nests, footprints, feeding traces, even root traces in the ground. The plant root's gone, but it's been filled in with new sand or mud or whatever. So yeah, there's the body fossils and there's the trace fossils. And I guess now we have chemical fossils because people are looking at the chemists can now with their fancy equipment can look at very small samples of rocks and fossils and find out all sorts of things carbon isotopes um, strontium isotopes where were they getting their water from where were they getting their food from so there's now chemical fossils i guess chemical fossils are really an extension of body fossils but at a different observational level so how old does a bone or plant sample have to be to be considered a fossil i think if it's undergone chemical change so my most familiar with fossil bone. I'm going to stay with that. So living bone is a composite material of mineral and organic, and fossils tend to lose the organic. Bacteria digest it away, and pore spaces become filled in with new mineral matter. And so the physical properties of living bone are very different from fossil. Fossils are extremely brittle. And the fancy phrase is called permineralization. Once a biological object has experienced permineralization and been altered, then I think you can call it a fossil. But there are fossils from the Gobi Desert which look like the animals died last month. They haven't been permineralized because it's so dry. And there's fossil wood on Ellesmere Island from the Cretaceous, or no, not Cretaceous, a bit younger, that they burn. In fact, there's this smoking cliffs at several places in the Arctic where fossil wood from tens of millions of years ago is burning. Really? It hasn't been altered. How do you know where to look for fossils? First thing is you need to know rocks of the right age. So the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old, and we have evidence for, we have chemical traces of life maybe at about four, 3.8, 4 billion years. No, the newer ones, young, older, 4.1, 4.2. Those are just chemical traces. Um, you need fancy equipment to see that. Macroscopic fossils, visual stuff doesn't appear until maybe about two to three billion years as stromatolites, things constructed. So you need to go to rocks of the right age, but for most people, visible fossils are starting about the Cambrian period, 500 million years to the present. So you need rocks of the right age, and then you need rocks of the right type. You need sedimentary rocks. So sandstones, siltstones, mudstones, limestones. There are some fossils preserved in volcanic ash, but they tend to be rare. So you tend to want rocks that were deposited by wind or water, the quickly buried organisms. So you need rocks of the right age, and the right type to find fossils. How do you determine that the rocks are the right age? We have two ways of determining the ages. We talk about relative dating and absolute dating. So the absolute dating comes from looking at the decay of radioactive isotopes, things like lead. There's different types of lead. There's uranium, there's thorium, there's carbon. Oh, there's one other one, I can't remember. But anyway, isotopes decay at known rates. And we know that elements, say like uranium or lead, are incorporated into rock crystals in volcano, in lavas. And we know that they're sealed. And the daughter product of radioactive products aren't in the initial sealed crystal. But over time, as they'll say the lead or the uranium breaks down by radioactive decay, the daughter product accumulates. And by measuring the ratio of parent to daughter product and knowing the rate of decay, you can work out an age that way. So that's absolute dating. I just want to say everybody hears about carbon-14 dating, but that only that's only good going back to about 50,000 years because the half-life of carbon is something like 26,000 years. So after 50,000 years, there's not much left. Well, I shouldn't know. It's not 26,000. It's shorter than that. Um, I can't remember the exact number. But anyway, carbon isotopes decay away very quickly. Radioactive carbon is being produced in the upper atmosphere all the time. That's why it doesn't disappear. For fossil for things going back millions of years, you need bigger, heavier atoms like lead and uranium and strontium to have much longer half-lives and don't vanish so quickly. The other thing we have is uh, relative dating. So over the past 
200 years, geologists have worked out that, and paleontologists have realized that certain fossils only occur at certain rock layers, and then they never reappear. And so over this past two centuries, people have worked out a really detailed scheme of what fossils you should expect to find at what times in the past. And that's really important because if you do not have a lava flow to get an absolute age, which is the usual case with fossils, you have to rely on this relative dating. It's been, we're fortunate here, we've got a lot of volcanoes erupting from the west and they're mixed in with fossils and so people have tracked the changes in say marine certain marine organisms like some ammonites and correlated an ammonite species with a lava flow or an ash fall and we can tie the fossil to a date and so with with the fossils it looks like we can get down plus or minus 50,000 years to a date when you're wow. looking back 100 million years that's pretty good and the technology is getting better every year um, so now people can look back at hundreds of millions or even maybe a billion years and have an uncertainty of only a few million years and in fact there was a major reset of the times the calibrations of the relative fossil ages. Um, all the dates shifted by several million years up and down because the chemists were improving their methods and their analyses. So what makes a good fossil hunting location? You need the place where the, the climate erodes the rocks quickly. And you also you want rocks that are quite soft and susceptible to erosion. A lot of the rocks we have around here are very soft. They're not well cemented. And we also have extreme temperature differences between winter and summer. Even in the summer, it cools off at night here. You can have hot days and cool nights. And that thermal expansion expands and breaks the rocks up. Um, we, when it rains here, beats on the ground and washes away the sediments. So you need a place where erosion rates are high enough that fossils can be exposed. We go back to Dinosaur Provincial Park every year because the erosion rates are really high there. But other places, say like Central Australia, the rocks are the right type and age, but it's so dry and the temperature is so hot and constant that there's very little erosion. So when people talk, Australia has good fossils, dinosaurs as well, but it tends to be from the coast where they've got wet climate, especially the southern coast of Australia and, and um, even Queensland up towards the northeast. They've got the climate that can help erode the rocks. So if you find only a portion of a skeleton, how are you able to identify which animal it's from. If it's something totally new and we just have one bone, no, we can't. Well, so people have been collecting fossils for seriously for say the last 200 years, 250 years. And we've built up a pretty good picture of the basic animals that you ex should expect to find. And for many of them, we've got good skeletons, not all of them, but the body forms, the skeletons are, are so distinctive that um, you can usually find a match. But even if it's not a perfect match, Organisms tend to be quite conservative. A group of organisms tends to be quite conservative. Evolution doesn't radically change their bodies every year. So if you think of like two-legged carnivorous dinosaurs, the theropods, they're basically unchanged since the Triassic. We know it's pretty easy to recognize theropod bones. They tend to be very thin-walled and smooth surface. These animals have lots of air spaces in their bones. So that's one another feature. Same with fishes, bony fishes, pretty standard body patterns, and you can recognize the skull bones, isolated plates from the skulls and stuff. Um, even the teeth, teeth are distinctive as well. So most of the mammal fossils from the last 60 million years are, tend to be teeth. The bodies tend to decay away very quickly based on where they live, but the teeth with the enamel are super resistant. And these people study the minutiae of teeth and they look at every bump and crenulation and they can figure out, oh, this tooth is closer related to that one. So even from isolated teeth are distinctive in many cases. Do you guys find new species regularly or do you guys, do you guys think you found pretty much every different type? Oh no, there's only about 500, at a, okay, a generous estimate, there's probably about 550 dinosaurs reliably known, but they were around for like 160 million years. There has to be more. There's 4,000 types of mammals alive today. There's oh, something wow. like 27, no, there's more than that. There's like 30,000 types of fish alive today. And there's oh, wow. new fish being described every every week. So the fossil record is just a tiny sample of what we get. And we only get animals who lived or died in places where their bodies could be buried. If they're living on the tops of mountains or way out in the deep ocean, we're not going to see them because the tops of mountains are erosive. You do not get sediment accumulating. Plus, there's not many animals live there anyway, so we don't sample those habitats. I think a problem with a lot of the mammal fossils is they're living in forests with deep litter, leaf litter, and super biologically active. A monkey falling out of a tree, the body in a warm human climate, the body's gone in days by the scavengers. And so the only thing that'll be left will be the teeth. So you have to choose a good place to die if you want to be a fossil. <laughs> I like that. I'll, I'll take note of that. <laughs>
<laughs> I, I know you briefly touched on this already, but how do you date the fossils? We don't just haul the fossil out of the ground. We carefully look at its state in the ground. We want to see what were the physical conditions that led to its burial. Was it water? Or was it a flowing river, a stream, a lake, ocean, near shore, offshore? Was it in the desert? And we also look at the other fossils we find associated with it. Maybe not directly, but in the same rock layers. So that's knowing if we can recognize local fossils, usually invertebrates, because uh, they're much more abundant, that can pin us down right away. We can say we're the early Cretaceous or even finer. They like the Aptian or the Albion subdivision of the early Cretaceous. But when we've got um, a volcanic ash, like in Dinosaur Park, there's a couple of ash beds that have been dated now, and they're really distinctive. And so you find out where is your fossil related vertically? Is it above or below the nearest dated ash bed? And that lets you pin down a date. But you have to remember that it could be thousands of years between when the animal died and buried and that volcano erupted. So we, we it's very rare to get the body in the ash layer. There's a pretty amazing rhino um, rhinoceros mass death assemblage. I think it's Nebraska, where all these rhinos perished in a major ash fall. So they all suffocated to death in the ash and they all collapsed and died in one spot. So there's a nice example where you can get a precise age. How often do paleontologists find fossils? There's there's stuff being found all the time. Um, we can't look for fossils in the winter here, because partly because the ground's often covered in snow, but also it's frozen solid. And even if you did find something, you couldn't do anything with it. So there's we get reports regularly from hikers, people doing construction work, uh, digging foundations or roadworks, uh, mines. We've got these, um, there's coal, like coal mines or gem quality shell mines or the, the uh, tar sand mines, um, they often bump into stuff. And in Alberta, they're legally required to notify us if they come across fossils. They're not allowed to do any further damage. And usually they're, they're pretty thrilled to, to find something. Yeah, if it's I, a nice change for their job. Yeah, if I remember correctly, a few years ago, they found that dinosaur in the oral sense, like a full... Yeah, we've, um, we, for about the last the 14 years I've been here, we, we've been getting a call every, on average every two years to go up to Fort McMurray and get another marine reptile like a plesiosaur or an ichthyosaur. And then in 2011, we had the huge surprise of that armored dinosaur. So that was a land-living animal that got swept out to sea. If it had died on land, it would have been most likely scavenged and rotted away. But it was swept out to sea and went to the seabed very quickly away from scavengers and away from the air. And that's why it was so well preserved. How often do you find whole skeletons? Those are extremely rare. I actually did a paper a couple of years ago. We looked at the fossil record from Dinosaur Provincial Park, where people have been collecting for over 100 years. There are tens of thousands of isolated bones, but only about 350 intact skeletons. And that's after, you know, like 120 years of intense collecting. So you can think a whole animal doesn't, it can be like a, an opossum or a sauropod dinosaur. When it dies, it's a resource waiting to be exploited. So bacteria and fungus and insects and other backboned animals are going to scavenge it and quickly get that easy food source. And then you've got the mechanical effects of say flowing water will break up a carcass and transport it and scatter it. And dinosaur park was in rivers and carcasses tend to break down from the extremities inwards. So they the head, the hands, the feet, the tails, they start to decay first and fall apart. And all those little pieces get scattered and eventually the rest of the body softens and falls apart and the flowing water just sweeps everything away. Um, I also think crocodiles and turtles were a major scatterer in dinosaur park fossils. So isolated bones can be very common. Partial or whole skeletons are very rare. Okay, so it's not like what you see in Jurassic Park at the beginning of Jurassic Park where they uncover the full dinosaur. No, no. <laughs> okay. I do. I will say though that, um, so that's like my Montana and their fossil deposits are very similar to ours. A lot of so there's major rivers coming out of the rising Rocky Mountains, flowing east, northeast. And so the geology in Montana and southern Alberta is very similar. Similar sorts of so the, the process of an organism becoming a fossil is called its taphonomic process. And there's people have studied living animals and how do they die and break up and how could they become fossils to interpret the past. And surprisingly, in the Gobi Desert, it's been a desert for like at least a hundred million years. And so yes, the dinosaurs and other animals are, tend to be intact. They haven't been broken up by water. And as the carcass dried out on the landscape, everything tightened up and then a sandstorm would cover it. So they tend to be more complete, even small, lightly built things. And also, in many cases, the bones are white. Our fossils and most fossils tend to be browns and blacks because the, the mineral, remember I mentioned that minerals in filling the pore spaces, they tend to have iron or magnesium compounds that darken them. But this stuff 
in the desert in Mongolia is nice and white. It's a little, there's a little bit of iron oxide staining from the rusty sand. You know, if you've seen the pictures of the red deserts, it's a bit of, there's a little, sure, there's some moisture. There's a little bit of iron staining, but the bones are basically white and they feel really light too. It's hard to believe they're fossils. Why are they so light? Because they haven't got this dense mineral filling them in. So you think we've got our a big mineral filling here is iron compounds. And so you think iron atoms are heavy. And so you've got what was originally either filled in with wet connective tissue or collagen or cells um, is now filled in with minerals composed of dense oxygen and silicon and iron and magnesium. So fossils tend to be very heavy compared to recent bone, and they're also extremely brittle. So living bone, because it's got this organic component, a crack that develops in the, in the mineral component won't propagate through the entire bone because it's going to hit a soft, squishy organic layer. And so the crack doesn't propagate and it gives the organism time to grow that bone. But in fossil bone, it's all mineral and a crack just runs all the way through. Some crack, And so I tell people to think of fossils as being made of glass. They may be heavy, but they're extremely brittle. You got, That's uh, one of the reasons um, we don't when people contact us, or we also give out the message, if you find a fossil, do not try to collect it yourself. Let us come and get it. Because they're so brittle, they need special care, and we know how to do it. Are bones still being found that make you rethink what a dinosaur looked like? Not really. So people have been collecting dinosaur bones since the early 19th century. They were probably collecting them previously, but they didn't know what they had. We pretty much know the basic body plans. It tends now to be variations on a theme. So new head crests, maybe different size claws, um, slightly different proportions but nothing radical. I guess one animal that really puzzled people for maybe about 60 years was a thing called Dinochirus. It was these giant hand claws. The claws are like this. And people thought, was it a giant turtle? What could it be? It turned out to be a really giant ornithomimid dinosaur. We've got them here. They're, 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 they're very common. They look, think of an ostrich with a tail and arms. That's what these things would look like. And they've got serious claws like this on their hands. But here's this Dinochirus in Mongolia or China, I can't remember. The thing is huge and its claws are unbelievably long and it wasn't until they found a more complete animal because originally this had the arms they had right. An art, a pair of arms with these giant claws and nothing else. But then a couple of years ago, they found the a specimen with the rest of the body. And it, it and so, so there was nothing truly novel. It was just changes in proportion. So what is a dinosaur? Okay, we're going to, we have a modern way of classifying organisms. Um, it's called phylogenetic systematics. People may have heard in the past the good old Linnaean system of kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. We've chucked most of that because that old scheme didn't take evolution into consideration. And so organisms were putting in these little boxes. And as we, as our knowledge got improved over the last 200 years in biology and paleontology, we realized you cannot stuff organisms into discrete boxes. There's gradations because natural selection is constantly operating in tiny variations. So this box, this we now have groups within groups thinking. So dinosaurs are their vertebrates and their chordates. So they mean they've got a spinal cord and a brain at one end, and then they've got vertebrae, bony constructions instructions along that spinal cord and a bony head. Then they're jawed vertebrates called the nathostomes. And then they're also part of a larger group known as the bony fishes. And then within that, they're within a group of fishes that evolves limbs, the tetrapods. And then tetrapods eventually be produced, one branch went off to amphibians and another group became the amniotes, which are egg-laying tetrapods. And then within the amniotes, there's a big split between the reptiles and the mammals. So the mammals belong to a group synapsids. The reptiles are a group called diapsids. The diapsids split into lizards and snakes and their close relatives, and then crocodiles and dinosaurs on the other branch. So we've gone down through all these levels. So dinosaurs and us are vertebrates, but dinosaurs are distinguished from us by certain features. And so dinosaurs at a base and most basic level, they're animals that were primitively bipedal. The first ones all walked on the hind legs. They had at least three bones fusing up their hips to their spines. Their legs were erect columns. If you think of lizards and alligators, the legs are out to the side, sprawling gait. Dinosaurs always have the hind legs right underneath the body. Dinosaurs also have a distinctive number of features in the skull. So I can back up a little bit. So dinosaurs and crocodiles belong to this group called archosaurs. 
dinosaurs. And one of the features they have is an extra opening in the skull on the side of the face. Uh, living crocodiles have lost it, but their ancestors haven't. And there was a whole bunch of other archosaurs in the Triassic that all went extinct. So dinosaurs and crocodiles are surviving archosaurs. And so dinosaurs and crocodiles share a common ancestor in the Triassic, or a bit early, maybe the end of the Permian. But crocodiles went off and were tended, the first crocodiles were competing with dinosaurs in the Triassic on land. But then crocodiles all moved into aquatic environments and dinosaurs became the archosaurs on land. So we cannot really use living crocodilians as models for dinosaurs. Birds, living birds are dinosaurs. I know you're coming to that in your questions. Oh, really? That's really cool. Yeah, if we if we only knew birds from their fossils, we would have been calling them dinosaurs from day one. There's a couple of re really nice features. I don't know if you wanted me to talk about it right now, but... Yeah, sure. Why not? So I always, at Christmas dinner, I always annoy people by giving them an anatomy lesson about dinosaurs on the table. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, if you look on the humerus, the upper arm bone of a bird, yeah. there's a flange back here. It's called the deltopectoral crest, and that's unique to dinosaurs. Crocs don't have it. Um, that's one I always like to point out. Also, if you look at the hips of dinosaurs, so the femur is the bone at the top of the leg, and at the top, it turns over, and here's the hips. They, it sits like that. It's turned over, and the weight of the body from the hips presses down on this interned head, and there's no weight force being pushed sideways. So if you look at the hip socket, in a dinosaur or a bird, it's hollow. It's called a perforated acetabulum, and that's unique to dinosaurs. If you look at a crocodile's pelvis, it's a wall of bone. It doesn't have this little hole. So there's there's two features. And also, if you look at the, the, the you look at the carnivorous dinosaurs, their toe bones. It's they have three main toes, and you go the number of bones is three, four, five. And if you look at it, go look at a chicken, look at its foot, three, four, five. There's loads of details about why birds are dinosaurs. There's all sorts of anatomical details. That is super cool. That's really cool. What would be considered like the first dinosaur that you, that you guys are aware of? Okay, the earliest known dinosaurs come from Argentina. They're about the early sort of about the middle to late Triassic time. Um, there's something called Herrerasaurus. There's a, because we're so close to the origin of dinosaurs in this middle Triassic, it becomes really difficult. Is it a dinosaur or is not? The boundaries, with new discoveries, the boundaries becoming a bit fuzzy. So I think people would say Herrerasaurus is almost a dinosaur. Um, there's Eel, there's Eoraptor, I think, is another one. These are, these are carnivorous forms. It's not until we come to the late Triassic that then things really cl become clear. There's several animals from um, the Triassic in the southwestern United States, like New Mexico and Colorado, that are very close to being like dinosaurs. But I think something like Herrerasaurus or Eoraptor trying to think of the other names i don't i don't spend too much time in the triassic so uh i can't so, tell you for sure i know by the late triassic we've definitely got dinosaurs like we've got plant eaters and we've got a long start of the long neck relatives of sauropods things like plateosaurus are there uh, we've got good really good predators like coelophysis in abundance as well so what would be the difference to make some of them dinosaurs and others not dinosaurs then well i mentioned those suite of characters like the number of hip bones the construction right. of the hips, um, the foot formula, uh, the openings in the skull, um, details in the shoulders as well. So it used to be in, in the good old days, like 100 years ago, when the fossil record wasn't so complete, you could see these gaps between organisms and it was clear where you could draw the line. But now with improved collecting, you know, we've got more, there's more and more people looking, there's more and more fossils. The boundaries are becoming hard to, to, to divide. So it, it tends to become convention. So when people publish a description of a new new fossil, you want to also distinguish it from the others and show similarities and differences and put it into one of these new phylogenetic trees. And eventually it becomes down to a definition. So people talk about defining, how would you diagnose a fossil and how would you define the type of group? So we people have proposed definitions for dinosaurs. And then with your new animal, you look at what features does it have? You say, how does it match the, the diagnosis or, or the definition? And so there's a bit of to and fro there. People's definition of what finds a dinosaur can, can vary. Some people want certain characters, some don't. So were the pre-dinosaur, was it just like lizards then? Like a various types? Oh no, lizards? there's things running around on their hind legs in the early Triassic and early middle Triassic in Argentina and in, in North America that if the average person looked at them, they'd say, oh, that's a dinosaur. Um, there's even bipedal crocodiles running around on land in the Triassic. Crazy. Really so there was all sorts of animals experimenting with bipedalism in, in the Triassic. Triassic. Triassic's an amazing time. There was a huge variety of animals that you never hear about worldwide, not just reptiles, but synapsids. Um, like the old name was mammal-like reptiles, um, but they tend to come from 
like South Africa or the Urals, not the West. So us in the West, we don't hear so much about. But in, no, no, there was there was all sorts of possible dinosaur ancestors and near and near dinosaurs in the Triassic. In fact, in the early, at the very bottom of the Triassic, there is footprints from Poland. I think they are. You would swear they were dinosaur footprints, but we don't have any body fossils from that early. Or the earliest known body fossils don't appear until the Middle Triassic. And there was the archosaur ancestors of dinosaurs also extend back beyond the Triassic into the into the Paleozoic into the Permian and the, and the um, and even older the, the you know, Carboniferous. So were the first dinosaurs much different evolutionary wise from the, like the last dinosaurs? The first dinosaurs were carnivorous. We can tell that from their teeth and their body plan. So they were things with large heads, big mouths, big teeth, or maybe not such big teeth, but anyway, good meat eating teeth and running around on hind legs. And they were very lightly built, agile predators. They also had grasping hands with good claws. So the basic pattern for don't say the last of the carnivorous traditional dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus, basically the same body plan. Tyrannosaurus just took that body plan in some extreme directions. But we see in the late Triassic um, the development of herbivorous dinosaurs. There's a, there's a big split within dinosauria. There's called the Saurischians and the Ornithischians. The Saurischians split into the theropods and the sauropods. Some of the theropods became plant eaters or omnivorous. The sauropods, the long-necked ones, they're all plant eaters. And the Ornithischians are all plant eaters. So they're all, all these groups are all present at the very, if not right in the Triassic or at the very end, certainly by the very beginning of the Jurassic, you've got the three main groups and they persist right to the end of the Cretaceous. And in uh, fact, today, the theropods, we still got theropod dinosaurs today. We call them birds. When did dinosaurs live? Yeah, so from about, say, people were saying maybe 220, 225 million until 66 million is the traditional cutoff at the end of the Cretaceous. But now we have to say, well, they're still around today as a form of birds. But traditionally, the ornithischians and the sauropods, they only go from, say, about 220 million to 66 million. And that was the Mesozoic era? Mesozoic. So we have the Paleozoic, which was ancient life from about 520 to 250 million. And then from 250 million to 66, we have the Mesozoic, middle life. And then we're now in what's called the Cainozoic or, or recent life. And you were mentioning like the, the different periods, like the Jurassic period and the, yeah. uh, stuff like that. Like what, why are there those few distinct different periods in that time? These, so going back, visible life, say macroscopic fossils that you could see with your own eyes or maybe a magnifying glass, they start to appear at the be very beginning of the Cambrian, about 520 million. Let me just check that date because the dates change. Okay, the bottom of the Cambrian is now at 541 million. I've got a time chart right here. And so you may have heard of the names like Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, Pennsylvanian, Permian, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. Those names were all established in the 19th century based on the distributions of fossils. Even that in the 19th century, people realized that it was sudden changes in the groups of fossils. So there were these minor extinction events, and there's five major extinction events. So people recognize there was suites of organisms that lived for a certain time, and then they got replaced or radically altered. And so the, the boundaries between these are all based on fossils. And so no one had no idea how old they were, but you knew who came first, who came second, who was last, who was the youngest. So that was all based on fossil work, and it's still Fossils are still important today. And the names tend to refer to geographic areas where the most distinctive rocks were best exposed and best studied. So like the Devonian period is based on rocks from Devon and southwest of England. The Triassic is named for a distinctive suite of three rocks from Germany um, called the uh, Buntsenstein, the Muschelkalk, and the Kuiper. And they're across Western Europe and even partly into North America. You can still see that three-part distinction in groups. Um, the Jura, the Jura, the Jura Mountains in, in Europe give name to the Jurassic period. And like Creta is Latin for chalk because the white chalk cliffs of Dover have to contain fossils. Are, it was a really good section for defining rocks of that time. So it becomes the Cretaceous period, literally the chalk period. So that's how the names get established. So could like a dinosaur have been in two different periods? Like could a T-Rex live in two different periods or is a uh, is there more of a clear division than that no fossil or organisms tend to only have a finite lifespan people are throwing around the number an animal might live for a million years it's a distinctive species but evolution either extinction will terminate it 
or it will gradually, its descendants will evolve into something different. And so organisms are continually adapting to their environments. The plants, the rocks, the climate, everything is constantly changing. And so organisms are going to continually evolve and, and change. We can see there's continuity of different related groups, but you won't see a single dinosaur extending for tens of millions of years. A really nice example in Western North America is we can track the evolution of various types of Tyrannosaur. So there, everybody and his dogs heard about Tyrannosaurus, but there's like 10, 14, or 10, I mean, there might be 14 species of Tyrannosaurus, or, or genera of Tyrannosaurus. We've got five in this province. In the 20 million year window that we have, uh, we've got five different types of Tyrannosaur. And in Dinosaur Park, there was clearly two different kinds living together. So Gorgosaurus and Despletosaurus. Is there a way to know the average lifespan of a dinosaur? Like, could a dinosaur live to 100 years old, 200 years old? Yeah, in the past, people thought, because dinosaurs were so big, and the fossil record originally was biased towards the really big stuff, the easy stuff, easy to find stuff. People originally thought these animals must have lived for hundreds of years. They thought, well, they're, they're reptiles, so they must be like lizards or turtles, grow really slowly. But gradually, 20th century, our knowledge of biology is a lot better. And now organisms better grow quickly and reproduce before they go, they get killed. If it takes 100 years for you to become reproductively mature, you have a really good chance of dying in that 100 years before it happens. So it's in an organism's interest to grow as quickly as possible and become reproductively successful. Otherwise, you won't persist. So it's now we, we can all look at, so people have made extrapolations from looking at crocodiles the young grow very quickly. And then they've also been looking at microscopic sections of bone. You cut a chunk out of book, cut out a chunk of bone, grind it down so thin you can shine light through it, and you look at it under the microscope, you can count growth rings. Cool. We can't see the early stages because bone is a dynamic structure and it's constantly being remodeled. But we can certainly count the last, I don't know, it depends on the animal, maybe 10 years, the last five years before they get remodeled and erased and rewritten. So, and then you extrapolate back from that. So people now have age estimates for dinosaurs. An old Tyrannosaurus would be 29. It seems that, and this also implies that these animals had high body temperatures. Certainly the sauriskians, the theropods and the sauropods appear to have grown extremely quickly. And it makes sense. If you need to get up to being a 10 ton, 12 meter animal, you better get up to that size quickly. And sauropods as well, they, they the sauropods, I don't know how they did it. They must have been I know elephants will spend like 20 hours a day eating and they're they're just a measly five tons if you want to grow to be a 40 ton sauropod how yeah. much are you time are you spending eating no kidding that's crazy i never yeah. thought about that part yeah and so it seems that the sauriskians tended to have higher body temperatures and grew quickly and there's indirect evidence birds inherited their warm body temperatures from their dinosaur ancestors but it seems that we have no evidence for rapid growth and high body temperature in the ornithischians things like triceratops and duckbill dinosaurs and stegosaurus they don't seem to have had active high body temperatures they may they may have been passively warm-blooded because when you get really big um it becomes difficult to lose body heat so tyrannosaur hatchling probably had feathers to keep warm like birds today but once you get above a certain body size, the last thing you want is insulation. Like elephants and rhinos and hippos, they're naked. They couldn't, if they had fur, it would be lethal. And it's thought, you know, a 10-ton tyrannosaur, the last thing it wants is feathers, because feathers are super efficient insulators. Do, did any of the dinosaurs have like fur or feathers or hair or anything like that? We now think that feathers were primitive for dinosaurs. When we say primitive, that means they were there at the early stages. We've now got evidence that some of the earliest ornithischians, plant eaters, branch. They did have feathers or feather-like structures, an animal called Heterodontosaurus. And there's some stuff from Siberia, which shows bodies. They're little, they're small animals. Uh, they've clearly got feather-like structures coming out of their skin and they probably would have functioned like feathers and we know that with lots of evidence not just from like fossils from china with animals that preserved in lakes from one of these ornithomimid dinosaurs we got from here in the red deer river valley just down the road there from I, if it wasn't for the trees i could see the site um there was an ornithomimid you can see the bumps on the bone where feathers would have attached just like in birds today so th even things that feathers appeared long before flight so feathers do not appear for flight they they made flight possible in birds, but it's not the only way to make a wing. Look at bats and pterosaurs. So feathers evolved for something totally different. What were they evolved for? They could probably do two things at once. Insulation is good. If you want to be warm-blooded, it's a good idea to try and retain that heat, then you don't have to eat so much. But also feathers, you can make them in patterns and colors and display structures. And it's thought that they were probably for species identification or males trying to impress females, things like that. Because we've got evidence of little feathers on the arms or crests on the head, just like 
that we see in a lot of birds today. Were dinosaurs all hatched from eggs or were some like mammals that were birthed? No, going back to this new classification system, this phylogenetic systematics, dinosaurs slot in nicely with lizards and crocodiles and birds today. You can think, we think of it as a branching. I'll try and do it with my fingers. <laughs> here we've got lizards over here. We've got crocodiles. Yeah, this, yeah. Here's the lizard branch. Here's the archosaur branch. We've got crocodiles and birds today. But we know there's another branch in here called extinct dinosaurs. These lay eggs. These lay eggs. The bird, so lizards lay eggs. A lot of them. So there's some live bears. Crocodiles all lay eggs. There's no live bearing crocs. Birds all lay eggs. There's no live bearing birds. Dinosaurs are slotted right in the middle. Dinosaurs must have laid eggs exclusively. And That's we've cool. got nests from all the major groups. So it's it's the same way we can predict that dinosaurs must have had color vision because all those three groups I mentioned, right. lizards, crocs, birds, they've all got color vision. Yeah, dinosaurs were egg, all egg layers. In fact, we've even seen in some of the bones, you can recognize what's called medullary bone when a female has to mobilize calcium and phosphorus from her skeleton to produce eggshell. It's very distinctive bone. And we've seen that in the fossils now. Going back to the feather thing. So if you said that the early ones had feathers. So what, so were they, were their skin kind of like what lizard skin is then? Or no, like what? More like bird skin. We've got lots of footprints preserved. And even, in fact, I'm working on a paper right now. From this site, we can see the little pebbly scales on the undersides of the foot that were pressed into the mud. And it's exactly like bird feet skin. And it makes sense that birds inherited their skin from their dinosaur ancestors. And there's many instances in the fossil record of not the exact skin itself, but impressions pressed into the mud, which record the different types of scales or feathers. So, you know, this is kind of off topic, but like if you were able to cook a dinosaur, would it taste like chicken? Certainly the theropods would. Tyrannos tyrannosaurus, yeah, I'm sure they would. So when you go to a museum and you see like the recreation of a dinosaur, how is that pretty accurate? Because like if you look at the skeleton of a rabbit, the skeleton of a rabbit looks nothing like the fuzzy thing that you pet. No, but we know from studies of living animals that the basic arrangements of the bone, of the muscles on those skeletons. And you can see marks on the bone where the different types of muscles would have inserted and attached or the, the fancy phrase is origin and insertion so i'll be an example my pectoral muscle originates on my chest and it inserts on my humerus so these are all stand you can go back to the earliest you know lizards and salamanders you can see this basic pattern of how the muscles on a tetrapod skeleton are arranged so tetrapods are all the limbed vertebrates and when we look at dinosaur skeletons we can see the same bones in the same places just change the shapes and proportions and then we can also often in many cases see the muscle scars where the muscles attached and then you just start filling in the gaps and then you have to put a skin on top of that and certainly when it comes to the face reptiles are easier to restore their heads and faces because they don't have any facial muscles and they don't have fat on their faces. The skin is stuck right down on the bone. Oh, interesting. So us mammals with our fancy lips, you know, to suckle and to chew our food and all that sort of extra facial stuff. Reptiles don't have that. They've just got muscles to work the tongue and open and close the jaws. Oh, and blink the eyes. So the faces are pretty easy to restore. And people are always doing, in fact, we just had a paper come out today in Pier J looking at muscle reconstructions in bipedal dinosaurs on the way to birds. You might want to check it out. Rhodes, Henderson, and Curry. Yeah, we just got the announcement today. That really shows you how we use lizards and crocodiles to restore the muscles of dinosaurs. And we can look at the change. We looked at the shapes of changes in the, the pelvic muscle, the pelvic bones and on the legs to see how the muscles themselves would have changed and moved. So I think I'm coming back to your rabbit example. We know the basic muscle groups and forms on mammals, and we could fill in a lot of the gaps on the rabbit. Also, rabbits have a lot of fur and folds of fur. Certainly the rabbits I've seen have all been well padded. And so they fill in a lot of the gaps, covering over the, the, the details. And then us mammals, we've got a muscle running here from the masseter down to the jaw, which helps with chewing and also keeps the food in the mouth while you're chewing. Rabbits have that. That would fill in the face and wouldn't make them look quite so bizarre. So yeah, once you put the muscles on, and we're pretty confident how the muscles go, people are, it's taken 200 years. If you look at the original studies of dinosaurs, like from Crystal Palace in the 1840s, 1850s, they really didn't know what dinosaurs were, and they really didn't have a good idea of an to me like we have today. So okay. if you look at dinosaurs from the mid-19th century and compare, it wasn't until about the early 20th that they started to settle down on the basic forms that we see now. So what kind of things can you learn from the skeleton, like fossils and stuff like that? So that's what I like to do. But people, they look for details. People, A lot of people are interested in determining the family tree, the history of evolution.
evolution. Who was ancestral? Well, we can't really find the true ancestors, but who were the most close relatives and who were the more the descendants? That's one thing you can do looking at details. The head is especially important for that. As an embryo develops, there's three important tissues come together to form the head. And there's, oh, there's just so much anatomical detail in the skull for figuring out relationships and evolutionary patterns. Plus, I always think it's nice to put a head on an animal. It gives it a personality. But so we can also look at the proportions of the elements. So if you think animals that run, like say, look at an ostrich, the femur, the upper leg bone is really short. The, the shin, the tibia, fibula, that's long. And then the bones forming the feet are really long. And then the toes are really short and stubby. We see the exact same limb configuration in the ostrich mimic dinosaurs, the ornithomimids. Ostriches can run really fast, you know, 50, 60 kilometers an hour. Ornithomimids, I bet, could even run faster because they had a tail with major muscles coming off the tail and attaching to the leg. And we can see the same muscle in crocodiles today. It's called the caudifemoralis longus. Lizards have it too. All dinosaurs had it. It's the main muscle that pulls the leg back. So looking at the skeletal proportions and of living animals and saying, what can these animals do? Are they diggers? Are they runners? Are they jumpers? We can make similar inferences for fossils. And we can also look at bite force. I've done a lot of work taking ideas from engineering and looking at the strengths of structures. And we can say, make estimates. How strong could the bite be? You know, was it crunching bone or was it not? Was, did it have a rapid, weak bite, you know, for picking up small things, say like pterosaur jaws? Or did it have big, heavy skull and jaw bones like a Tyrannosaurus, which is probably crunching bone? Oh no, there's there's lots we can learn. But can you tell things like whether it lived in a pack? That gets more tricky. Okay. There are associations where many dinosaurs came to be buried together, but a lot of people think it may just have been an extreme situation. Uh, you say rising water levels and the animals are all standing on the last bit of high ground and eventually the water comes up and they all drown, get swept down river together. That's a good possibility. Certainly, we do know that a lot of dinosaurs nested in groups. We've got lots of evidence for this now from sauropods and duckbill dinosaurs and some other, some of the uh, theropod dinosaurs from, from Mongolia, like oviraptor, that these animals were certainly nesting in colonies like birds do today. And a lot of the nest constructions are probably very similar to even what crocodiles did. So again, even if we never had any dinosaur fossil nests, based on the fact that crocs make nests, birds make nests, it's just natural to dinosaurs slot in the middle, it's natural to predict that dinosaurs must have made nests and produced lots of eggs with a very low expectation that they're all going to survive. Just like crocs, you know, the female will lay many tens of eggs, but only not, they're all not all going to become adults. Were there, kind of weird question, but were there any instances of like dinosaurs crossbreeding? Like could a T-Rex mate with something other than a no, no, there's all sorts of mechanisms in animals to prevent crossbreeding. Only really close relatives could. Partly you have to have the chromosomes have to be similar enough that chromosomes are all going to line up nicely and produce viable embryos. Um, and the more distant related you become, the less and less chance there's going to be successful matching of genes from the male and female. But also organisms, you know, reproducing takes energy and materials. You do not want to waste it. So there's all sorts of checks like courtship rituals ensure that you're signaling to the species that's going to have the most compatible genes <laughs> and eggs and sperm. Um, you don't want to waste your time producing nothing. So there's all sorts of really controlled ways to stop crossbreeding. But if things have only diverged, say recently, say within a few hundred, few thousand years, possibly, like wolves and dogs, there's only a few thousands of years separating wolves and dogs. So they can sometimes produce hybrids. Like I don't think horses and zebras, I don't think they can cross. So what killed off the dinosaurs? You were saying earlier that there's like five major... We call them mass extinctions. So there's, there's called the big five. There's one, there's a couple in the Paleozoic and there's two in the Mesozoic. So it was one at the end of the Ordovician. It's thought there was a major ice age over the whole of the Earth. There was another one at the end of the Devonian. That's still a bit of a mystery. And then there was one at the end of the Permian, which was the most severe. It's estimated 95% of all life went extinct. And that marks the boundary between the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic. And things rebounded really well in the Triassic, and there was another serious extinction at the end of the Triassic. That swept away almost all the mammal-like reptiles, and all these weird and wonderful archosaurs that you never hear about, like Rawasukians and um, Erythrosuchids and Stegonolepids and all sorts of fantastic things. And then basically that, that end Triassic extinction cleared the decks and let 
dinosaurs and crocodiles become the new group of terrestrial top animals. And then the most recent extinction was the end Cretaceous extinction, which clobbered all the dinosaurs except the birds, although one group of birds was seriously hit. And then mammals sort of trickled along in the background that whole time. And once all the big terrestrial animals represented as dinosaurs were gone, mammals quickly filled in in the next 10, 15 million years, filled in all the large body roles and daylight animals. Cool. So what was the thing that killed off the last time? Okay, the asteroid impact hypothesis is perfect because you have to kill on land and in the sea. So everybody hears about the extinction of dinosaurs, but that was just one small part of who got clobbered at the end of the Cretaceous. You have to kill off all the marine reptiles, like the mosasaurs, the big sea lizards. You have to kill off all the last of the plesiosaurs. You have to kill off um, the rudest clams. You have to kill off the last of the ammonites. Um, there was all sorts of plankton and diatoms that really went extinct. Various plant groups got clobbered. So that's, and all this happened at the same time as dinosaurs and pterosaurs were extinguished on land. And they all happened at a very narrow time, so probably like months. There was one really bad afternoon, but then the effects rumbled on for years and years. Oh, None so of the other extinction mechanisms proposed in the past can do all that. They're very selective. And the old ones, like, oh, the mammals ate the dinosaur eggs. That's so dumb. If, <laughs> why, didn't, why did dinosaurs and mammals persist the whole time? And dinosaurs and mammals were these pokey little things and hiding out in the night. So yeah, mammals had 160 million years to eat all the eggs and extinguish the dinosaurs. No, they never did it. A couple last questions. I would kick myself if I didn't ask this, but how accurate is Jurassic Park? <sighs> There's a lot of problems. <laughs> I, even have a, I have a talk I give called What Really Bugs Me About Dinosaurs in the Movies. <laughs> Jurassic Park takes major hits. Oh, really? Yes. In some ways, it brought to the public a new view of dinosaurs as active, successful, dynamic animals with a huge variety, but there's a lot of problems. Just to start that skeleton they show at the beginning, it's so obviously a cast. Like the texture and color aren't right. <laughs> Come on, folks, couldn't you produce a decent... We, we, we produce really nice casts and sell them to other museums. And with a good paint job, it's really hard to tell the difference, but that one's so obviously a cast. And the way the rocks just flow away like dust, no... And plus, you would never, we, when we collect a fossil in the field, you want to keep as much rock around it as possible. It's the best packaging material. Yes, it's evil heavy, but it's bomb-proof once you put it, put it in a plaster jacket. So we do not want to expose that much bone in the field. It's just asking for damage. And the genetic stuff, even after a few thousand years, the genetic material is breaking down and coming into segments. I just heard it, I listened to our science program yesterday. They're really pleased they got viable DNA going back about one million years. Um, so so that's a step up from, you know, just a few thousand. But again, it's all fragments and you're having to put together the fragments. And there's a lot of study of fragmentary DNA from Neanderthals and, and other humans. Um, that's coming along. But going back millions of years, no way. So you can't extract the DNA from the mosquito? No, it'd be, there'd, there'd be little chunks, little bits, little bases, like the amino acid bases, but you're not going to get viable chunks to even begin. Also, why did they use a frog? Why didn't they use a <laughs> bird? Bird is a living dinosaur, which genetically a bird is much closer closer to any dinosaur than it is to a, than a frog. Uh, why a, I just couldn't get over it. Why a frog? I think part of the problem when that first Jurassic movie came out, the idea that birds are dinosaurs was still pretty new. And I think they may have worried that people may have choked on that idea. Okay, so next question is, what is your favorite dinosaur? I like Brachiosaurus because it's so big and we know its skeleton really well. That's probably my favorite. It's just so big and you wonder, how did it move? How did it live? And it wasn't just one, you know, there had to be a population of them. These things must have just devastated the landscape. When I heard of elephants, goes through, they strip the place and they don't come back there for months because you have to wait for the foliage to grow back. So that's probably my other, the other one I really like is Stegosaurus. It's just so bizarre with these giant plates sticking out of its back and it's got a big body and a small head. It's just so strange. I always liked that one. Okay. And then the last question would be if someone suspects that they found a fossil, what should they do? If they should contact their nearest university geology, earth science department or museum and get an expert, send them pictures. Everybody's got, you know, a phone now or a digital camera. The, I guess the main message is please don't try and collect it yourself. <laughs> leave, leave it in the ground. Send us a picture. So, and also put in a, like a coin or a key or a pen for scale and note where it is. Like 
any distinguishing feature on the landscape. Yeah, you have to let the professionals see it first. Dinosaur fossils are extremely rare. The only reason you hear about them in the news is because they are newsworthy, but they are extremely rare. Here in North America, we probably hear about it more than other countries. How come? I think they, we're for, fortunate that the interior of North America has been accumulating sediment with the rising mountains, you know, the, all the mountains down the Cordillera down the west. We've been recording dinosaur fossils for almost 250 million years. And we've got these you know, kilometer thick accumulations of sands and muds. And then certainly in Western North America, both North and South, we've got this extremely arid climate with sort of flash floods and temperature extremes, day, night, winter, summer. So the fossils become exposed really well. Um, it's said that the South coast of England, if it had Southern Alberta's climate, they'd have badlands and their early Cretaceous dinosaurs would be super abundant. But um, because of their climate, they only get dinosaurs eroding on the coast. Oh, okay. So they don't have the same exposure we have. So let the professionals know about the fossil first. You, you, you're not doing us any favors if you try and collect it yourself. You're just going to end up breaking it. That's, what, that's our biggest worry, that people are going to damage them. Or if they take what they see and walk away, they might be missing more. We always excavate out around in case there's more pieces. Leave it to the professionals. And if it's something you will name it after. Cool. That's all of my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I always like to tell the, the popular opinion is that dinosaurs were failures. Well, they're all dead, aren't they? No. We've all got birds today, and dinosaurs were around for 160 million years on all the continents. They were really successful group. Their body sizes have never been duplicated by mammals. You know, the biggest mammal is like the blue whale, 100 tons. But they cheat. They're in the water, and they're feeding much lower down on the food web. They're just inhaling krill, tons of krill per mouth. But I think it's the, the boy of the water, it keeps lets them get big. And whales are rare. We have, there's probably reasonably 60 ton sauropod dinosaurs, things like Argentinosaurus and Patagotitan and these things in South America. Yeah, they're bigger than most whales, not as big as a blue whale. And they're land animals. Do you know why they got so big? Certainly in the Mesozoic, the continents were bigger. Our modern times with the continents all dispersed into smaller land masses. And then we've got fairly high sea levels. So there's like, maybe not so much the high sea levels. It's the, the continents are smaller. And it's been shown that the bigger the land area, the bigger the average size of the animals can be, or the bigger the maximum size can be. So in the Mesozoic, you'd had a few very large continents, and that meant you had enough habitat to feed a successful, viable population of 50-ton animals. We can't do it today. You know, elephants are what, five? I think some of the biggest elephants may be 10 tons, but they're extremely rare, certainly nowadays. And um, yeah, the continents are too small to support big plant eaters. And in the, in the Mesozoic, when you want to process, to efficiently access a big carcass, you needed a big predator with a big, big skull and big jaws and big teeth. And there's probably a bit of an arms race as well um, between wanting to eat something and the thing not trying to resist being eaten by getting, becoming big is a really good way to avoid being eaten. Another reason why you want to grow really quick, get out of that vulnerable body size and get up into a size where you're not going to be eaten. like el adult elephants and rhinos are basically attack proof. Right. No, no, no lion's going to go after them. So I think that, 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 that also might've been a reason. The other reason is that flowering, no dinosaur in the past ever saw flowering plants. They're, they only appear in the Cretaceous. So big juicy fruits and soft leaves that we see today on plants weren't really part of the plant eater diet. They were eating ferns and cycads and conifers, really tough, woody, low quality food. And to get enough nutrition out of that, you need a really big digestive tract and complicated stomach and intestines. Keep that food in your gut for a long time and try and get bacteria and other microorganisms to extract the nutrients for you and get that. And I think sauropods got really big to process this low quality fodder. That was another reason. Yeah, that's that's all my questions. Okay. Yeah. So I guess my closing message, dinosaurs weren't losers. They were really successful. The, the, the solar system just dealt them a really bad hand with that asteroid. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed. And who knew that dinosaurs would taste like chicken? Hmm. No wonder they kept eating each other. Well, anyways, if you want to read his paper, check out the description below. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much.